Class is in session. You're listening to Squat University by Dr. Aaron Horshay. Let's go! Now, let's start the show. Podcast listeners, thank you so much for checking out today's show. This is episode 36 of the Squat University podcast. The goal with each and every one of these shows is to bring you as much value-packed content to help you move better in the gym and in life, decrease your body's aches and pains, and help you reach your true athletic potential. Now, before we get started with today's show, I want to remind you guys again about the Squat U Club. Uh, Here's the deal. As much as I try to help people throughout the day on DM, over email, fix issues in their technique and help them recover from the normal everyday aches and pains associated with heavy training, I cannot get to as many people as I would like to. For this reason, I decided to do this daily giveaway club for all the hardcore Squat U fans out there, basically giving away what I can hope to be as much of a valuable to you guys, uh, which is my time. So here's the deal. Every day, I post a new piece of content as quickly as possible, like comment with the hashtag squat you club on that post and I will pick one person each day to help. I'll reach out to you a direct message. I'm sure you guys have seen some of the Snapchat stories or the Instagram stories. Hey, so-and-so, you are today's winner. How can I help? So in order to be uh, the first in line to get your name in the drawing each day, make sure you turn on post notifications and just make sure you're staying constant with all the content that I'm putting out and hopefully you can be a winner as well. So that is the Squat You Club. Now, today's podcast is another interview podcast, which I hope you guys are enjoying some of these longer form shows recently. Recently, this is probably going to be one of my most favorite in that it is talking to a gentleman that I have become very good friends with over the past two years because of a situation that is probably something that you know came out of something very, very bad, which was one of the most severe injuries that I have ever witnessed, but then gotten a chance to help rehab. Um, if you guys don't uh, know who this is yet. This is Josiah O'Brien. He was, I guess you would say, the star of the documentary uh, on YouTube that I put out called Josiah's Story. Um, But I will let him introduce himself and then we will get into his story and everything that went along with his rehab. And uh, yeah, so Josiah, thank you so much for being on today's show. Can you introduce yourself to all the listeners out there? Yeah, glad to be here, Aaron. Uh, I'm Josiah O'Brien, I'm owner and operator of Optimum Personal Train in Blue Springs, Missouri. I've been powerlifting for a little over 10 years, and I guess you could say that I've had one of the worst squat injuries, powerlifting injuries ever caught on tape. So I'm, I'm famous for that now. <laughs> <laughs> now, take me back to the day. When, when did this injury first happen? Because I remember we... Sp- first spoke in i think it was january of what was that 2017 17 now this injury happened in october of the uh of the prior year yeah the injury was october 22nd of 2016 uh surgery was november 15th of 2016 and my first day of physical therapy was february 27th of 2017 so i know all these very specific dates because each date was a, uh, a landmark for me and trying to move forward from all this and uh, get better. So there was a reason why I'd never reached out to you until January because I knew I wouldn't be able to start therapy mm-hmm. until after 16 weeks and uh, straight leg braces. 
Now, for those out there that are not familiar with the injury, I've, I've shared it a few times on Instagram and on social media, and there's a number of people who have also watched the full-length 26-minute documentary on YouTube. But for those out there that have not seen the video, describe exactly sort of the what happened, the step-by-step process of that day leading up to it. Obviously, this was your third attempt on squat at the powerlifting meet. Take us through that day, everything that happened. Well, uh, in the warm-up room, everything felt fine. I uh, really had no doubts as far as the attempts I was going to hit that day. Um, my last attempt was a 655, and in the gym leading up in that training cycle, I squatted 665. So I thought to myself, like, you know what, I'll hit the 655, it'll be a small PR, and I'll move on with the rest of the meet, and uh, hopefully get a good bench and a good deadlift. And my first attempt felt pretty good at uh, 600. My second attempt felt pretty good at 638. And then my last one, when I unracked it, I felt like it was going to be my best one. I was, I was ready to go. My mind was right. And when I went down, I felt my, I felt my right leg snap, and I wasn't sure what happened. Um, I went down immediately, and my immediate reaction was I thought I broke my leg, like maybe my leg broke. I never really noticed the left one go. It was just the initial right one, which happened to be my quad tendon tearing off. That was the loud broomstick snap that myself and I think everybody in the audience heard. So. Yeah. Now, in, the, in this weight that you chose, this was not like a crazy big PR, something that you hadn't come close to touching before. What was your previous PR? Oh, my pre- previous PR was 650. So this is five pounds. We're talking weight. about a five-pound PR, and we were talking about a, an easy 665 in training that I did mm-hmm. three weeks prior to that. So yeah. I, was, I was confident and ready to go with it, and obviously that didn't go as planned. So the weight crashed down on you. You had people that were able to jump out from the crowd. And if I remember correctly, there were a few nurses and a chiropractor that were on there site. Were, yeah, there, there were two RNs and a chiropractor and a paramedic and a fireman guy that was there. And so you couldn't ask for almost a better yeah. uh, situation and a disastrous injury. You mm-hmm. know, they, they, they immediately knew what to do with me and uh, to get my legs out from underneath me because I couldn't move my legs. They, yeah. were, just, they were just pinned back. And um, next thing you know, they're they're calling nine one one, and I realized that I couldn't I couldn't move my legs at all. You know, I couldn't extend them, I couldn't lift them, and uh, my kneecap was kind of on the side of my leg a little bit, and I knew it was messed up pretty bad. And so, this was this was up in Iowa. This was in Des Moines, Iowa. I was there by myself with my wife and nine week old baby at the time. We're at home, and I told my wife, uh, I'm going to go lift at this meet. And I'll be right back. It'll be no big deal at all. It's it's uh, just an everyday routine. And this is the first meet that she's never never been at before. And I think it was probably a good thing that she wasn't there. Mm-hmm. Because uh, I don't know if she would have handled it too well. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So directly after, if I remember correctly, you said you had to ride in the back of your tr- buddy's truck all the way back to the hospital. Right. They, well, they first, they, they put me... Uh, the ambulance took me over to, um, I believe it was Mercy uh, in Des Moines, Iowa. And long story short there, they scanned me. They did the MRIs, the CT scan, x-rays. And the doctor there pretty much just said that he didn't want to operate on me and that I should probably go back to Kansas City and referred me to a guy at Kansas Medical Center. And so I thought... 
you know, how am I going to get back to Kansas City? Like, my legs are just kind of dangling here. And so I just, uh, they shot me up with a bunch of morphine. I just said, just load me up with as much as you can and give me some pain meds. And I mean, uh, a few of my buddies that were at the meet just threw me in the back of the truck and we made the two hour drive from Des Moines all the way back to KC. And I was just, I was just laying back there hanging out. So <laughs> and then eventually you went to see Dr. For, or Dr. Christopher Shaw. I eventually, after a, a few days of waiting, uh, I had to advocate to see somebody, but I, I ended up seeing Dr. Christopher Shaw. Yes. He was supposed to be, uh, um, the right hand man for catastrophic injuries and he so happened to be he did he he lived up to the hype i guess you could say great surgeon great surgeon now absolutely. i've actually got the surgical post-op notes right in front of me so i'm going to read off for all the listeners exactly what was uh done so right knee we had an acl pcl and mcl reconstruction with allograft and a quad tendon repair on the left knee, we had an ACL, PCL, patellar tendon reconstruction with allograft with MCL repair and partial uh, lateral meniscectomy. Um, that's probably the most invasive and multi-ligamentous reconstruction uh, with the most amount, I guess, of ligament reconstructions that I had ever seen. Now, most of you know, uh, Squat University is not my full-time job, although I do spend probably close to 80 hours a week working on creating Squat University content, direct messaging people, trying to expand the amount of content that I have out there. I also work 40 to 50 hours in my main job as a sports physical therapist at Boost Physical Therapy and Sports Performance out here in Kansas City, where I treat athletes of all ages from eight years old to the college age kid, uh, you know, your professional athletes, and even grandma who had a total knee replacement. So I see a lot of athletes. And one of my specialties, I guess you would say, something that I know that we see a lot of at Boost Physical Therapy and we pride ourselves in our abilities to rehab uh, correctly and with a lot of proficiency is ACL rehab. So I see a ton of middle school, high school, and college age athletes who have ACL tears. And those by itself are very, very <clears throat> difficult to return injuries in that it's probably one of the most important ligaments as far as stability of the knee. If it is torn, you're looking at at least you know six months out from play because of how devastating the surgery is and how long the rehab is to get back to 100%. And that's just one ligament. Um, sometimes you'll see sort of a triad where you're going to see ACL, MCL, and maybe a little bit of meniscus tearing as well for very bad injuries. And every once in a while, you'll see an athlete who will have maybe two ligaments, so an ACL, MCL, maybe an LCL. It's very rare to see more than uh, two ligaments torn. On top of that, Josiah had his patellar and quad tendon severed. So basically every supporting ligament and tendon for the knee were completely severed in this injury. So again, one of the most devastating types of injuries I had seen up to this point. And I've been, after graduating with my doctorate, working in a very high-level sports rehab clinic for seven years. Um, now, I think one of the big questions a lot of people had when viewing your videos was how the hell would this happen? How, how do your tendons just snap? 
Now, we're going to get into a little bit of the science of it, but I want to go back in time. Had you experienced any type of patellar quad tendon pain leading up to this meet? I'm talking like in the, in the years of training, had you ever had any of that pain? Well, um, <clears throat> let's see. You know, I, I guess you could say I've always had, I like to call it irritation. Mm-hmm. That's, what I, that's what I would say. I had, I had, you know, my patella tendons once in a while would be a, become uh, like patella tendonitis or something like that throughout college football. And uh, after college football, you know, I, I moved strictly to powerlifting. So just having some typical aches and pains to me was acceptable and uh, it was normal. And what I didn't pay attention to over the years time and – I just told you a bit ago, my, my wife noticed that in a lot of my lifting videos, my form was starting to change. I wasn't squatting as deep. Uh, my sumo stance, I was starting to pull with my back more than I would actually sink my hips down to pull the deadlift. So all the, these are all, and now looking back on it, were, there were warning signs. There were warning signs that, you know, hey, it's time to back off. It's time to take a step away, maybe reevaluate some things with your training, reevaluate some things with uh, your rehab and recovery. I paid no attention to rehab and recovery. I just, I lifted hard. I trained hard. My priority was to keep putting bigger weights on the bar. I didn't care about, um, you know, if my elbow ate, if my knee bothered me. If I, if I seen three sets of five at 90% that day on squat, I was going to do it. And that was going to be the bottom line. I, I couldn't see consequences possibly happening. And unfortunately, I had a, I had a big consequence. So. so let's dive into a little bit of the science for all the listeners out there. When someone experiences patellar or quad tendon pain, you can think of your tendons specifically in that area. They're sort of like springs. They absorb load and they dissipate it and allow you to bounce up from the bottom of a squat or especially if we're talking like jumping and running. In propulsion, they give you that spring-like mechanism to allow you to generate tremendous force and power. Well, if you have a case of pain in those areas, and it's true tendon pain, A, it's going to be load-related. So the more you lift, the more pain you will experience. So this is common with weightlifting and powerlifting to have episodes sometimes of load-related pain, patellar or quad tendinopathy is what we give it a blanket term. And there's so many times where I will get messages from people that say that they've been dealing with it on and off for a long time. Now, when you're looking at quad and patellar tendon pain, the first thing you need to understand is, is it brand new or is it something you've been dealing with for a long time? The first time it happens it, it usually takes a long time for it to calm down, a number of weeks. What we look at is your tendon becomes what we would label as reactive. Now, for any of my science nerds out there, if you want to look into the actual science of how this happens, look at the research of Jill Cook. And I'll actually be speaking with her on the podcast uh, in a number of weeks, so a little bit of uh, preview on that. But basically, the tendon slips into a early phase of injury called reactivity where some of the cells sort of go haywire basically. Now, if you take time off, you change your load, you change your volume so that you allow your body to recover, things can be fine. Your cells can go back to normal, your tendon will heal. That is saying that you are actually managing it appropriately. However, what Josiah just alluded to is that a lot of times people will look at that kind of tendon pain and they'll go, ah, it's a normal everyday ache and pain of being a weightlifter, powerlifter. I'm just going to continue pushing through it. It'll go away. 
Well, eventually it may sort of go away, but what you don't understand is that while the pain may start going away, if you continue to push through the loads that you're placing on your tendons that are overloading them and causing them to become injured, while the pain may go away, the pathology or the injury to the tendon still remains and can continue to get worse. And what happens is that there's this three-stage of injury. There's reactivity, which is the first stage, then there's disrepair, and then degeneration. And the further along that continuum your tendon goes, the more injury occurs, and eventually your tendon starts to break down. So when you look at your tendon under a microscope, basically, you have these very nice aligned fibers of collagen. And what happens is that as your tendon goes along that continuum and turns into disrepair and then degeneration, parts of that collagen start to become disorganized. So if you looked under a microscope, you would see very nice aligned fibers and then sort of islands or holes of disorganization where things aren't matching up well. Basically, part of the tendon are dying off. Now, People will use the analogy of the donut with a hole. Uh, if you were to look at your tendon in a microscope again, you're seeing the hole in the middle, like a donut, is the part of the tendon that has become degenerated or starting to die off. Whereas the donut, the actual part that you would eat, obviously, is the healthy part of the tendon that remains. The longer you push through tendon pain, regardless if there is current pain or not, remember, sometimes it can go away and you can still continue along the injury pathway, the more disorganized tissue and the more dysfunctional tissue you have in the tendon, eventually that can continue to grow and you're going to have a lot of this degenerated tissue. The thing that's scary is that the degenerated tissue, remember those islands or holes of dead tissue, they don't create pain. So you may only have pain when the healthy portion of your tissue becomes reactive or it's overloaded. So what happens is that clinically we'll look at this as you either have pain for one specific time. It's a new new pain. That's called reactive uh, you know, tendinopathy. And if you deal with it correctly and you take away the stress, let's say you were just overloading yourself. You had 10 by 10 one day of squats and you did a, followed it up with a lot of plyometrics. The next day you woke up and your tendons hurt like crazy. That's reactive. That's the first time it's ever happened. If you then stepped away and you said, all right, I need to modify my load, my volume. I'm cutting it back within a few weeks. You know, you can still train, but not strain, train so heavy that your tendon flares up. Eventually, you managed it well. The tendon went back to normal. You're good. However, if you continue to train through it, eventually you push yourself down that continuum of pathology and your injury progresses. Whether or not you have pain, you may have developed a degenerated tendon. Like uh, Josiah said, when he was getting ready for that meet, he didn't have tendon pain, but he had likely very degenerated tendon tissues because of his path uh, past of pushing through tendon pain. So there was so much degeneration in those tendons that eventually it ruptured and it was too much overload for the tendon to continue handling. Now, in my own personal speaking with his surgeon, Chris Shaw, who out here in Kansas City, who if anyone's in Kansas City and looking for a great surgeon, definitely mm-hmm. hit him up because he's one of the best surgeons around. Um, you know, he said that his tendons had become so degenerated that it was very tough for him to create the sutures for the quad and patellar tendons in surgery. Now, while we were going through um, his original rehab very early on, and we'll talk about that right now. We got to a point where his knees would not bend. They could not bend anymore. 
we were doing a lot of very physical and tough manual work. For some people in the rehab world, when they come to you and they have tendons or just knees in general that sort of freeze up after a surgery, some surgeons will elect to do a manipulation. Basically, they put you under and they crack through scar tissue and it allows more freedom of motion. We talked with Dr. Shaw about this because we had basically plateaued in our progress and he basically was like, there's no way we can do a manipulation. His tendon quality was so poor, he feared that it would re-rupture them if we tried to do a manipulation. So um, just to show you and give you a little bit of background on this, this is why from a prehab side of things, why it's so important to listen to your body and take the necessary steps in modifying your volume and frequency of training in doing exercises to help promote healing when you're noticing these types of tendon pain because the old adage of no pain, no gain does not work in the weight room when it's really, when it's real pain. You know, um, so let's do, let's, let's, let's switch up our talk. Now we had the surgery. You were in straight leg braces for 12 weeks. Dr. Shaw was basically because the 16, tendons, 16 weeks, 16 because, weeks, because the degeneration had been so bad and it took so long for him in surgery to try to sew everything back together. He basically told you, I don't want you bending the knees for 16 weeks. Tell me about that whole process. Well, the whole <laughs> I, my my concern at the at first was not to um, it wasn't to get back to lifting or training. I I run my own business, so my my number one thought was you know how the hell am I going to work if I don't work I don't make money, you know. So I my wife and I had to put together a game plan for that, and um, she took over for me for a couple of weeks <clears throat> after I got operated on, but after that, you know I. I, I went to work in a wheelchair. You know, I didn't care. I, I've been a business owner now for five years, and you know, I told my I told my wife I, I've worked my ass off, and I said I am not going to lose my business because of an injury like this. And so I'd get up at two thirty in the morning. My first client wasn't until five, and I'd maneuver my way around the kitchen, try to do everything the same, make my breakfast, take a shower. Um, I'd slide myself down the stairs, and my wife would drop me off at work at 4.30, and then come back and get me a night at 7. So I'd just sit there all day, and uh, <clears throat> still worked, and I have great clients. So they, they all stayed with me, and they all even helped me and took me home and uh, assisted me in any way that they could. But, you know, it, it's, you know, a, a few weeks of it, it I, I thought I was doing fine, I think probably around week... 10 when i knew that time was about up i was getting pretty antsy to take them off because i you know I, i'm not gonna lie I, I did i did some research myself you know dr google knows best and, <laughs> and, I, and i talked to some other weightlifters and powerlifters in the community that uh have an idea about some uh tendon ruptures and they were telling me just take them off take your leg braces off like you don't you don't need them now you're fine I, I took mine off after six weeks and I was good to go and so I'm sitting here trying to tell my wife like I'm gonna take my braces off and she's like the hell you are like you're gonna leave them on you know this is what your surgeon told you you know listen to your surgeon not listen to some dumbass at the gym that you know who's trying to take your leg braces off and so I I, I fulfilled the full 16 weeks I, I stuck with it and I did everything that. I did everything that my, my doctor told me to do. I did, and I did it to a T. He even wanted me to sleep in them, mm -hmm. and I slept in my leg braces. So, and uh, 
that wasn't very comfortable, but I was, I, I did it. I did it anyway. I did what was necessary. I thought, you know what? I, I put myself in this situation uh, with a, a bad accident, and I'm going to do what it takes now to get out of it. And that's the whole mindset I had all the way through it. But if I remember correctly, it was March March 5th, I think, is when I got out of my leg braces. I think you told me to take them off mm -hmm. at that time. You just told me to take them off at therapy one day. And at first I thought, oh, I'm taking a leap of faith here, you know, taking my braces off. And you said, go ahead and walk over here to the leg press. And I looked at you like, do you want me to just walk over there? And I remember the first time I asked you to get on the <laughs> ground and back up. Well, first off, I, I told you, I was like, hey, today we're going to foam roll. And I, I think you were like, I'm going to what? Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't think foam rolling was a part of the power of the way of I, life I, back I nev then. I never foam rolled in my life. <laughs> I was like, one, I was like, if I get down on the floor, how am I going to get back up? Yeah. And two, I was like, why am I going to foam roll? Like, yeah. I, I didn't understand the concept. I, I truly didn't. Yeah. But you know what? I, I've always been a, a very so-called coachable mm -hmm. person. And I was like, he's the boss. I'm going to do what he says, and uh, we'll, we'll see what, where it takes us. Now, right after your injury, you had people in the powerlifting community reach out to you, some people with very, very big names right? that really speaks to the community of powerlifting. And obviously, weightlifting is very similar in that it's a, it's a small community, and people know things that you know they may not know that person or be best friends with that person, but they know them. Mm -hmm. And they know of big things that happen in the in the sport. And can you speak to just how that affected you being uh, connected to some of these people, giving you support and lending you their you know their best wishes? I think the the first person that really uh, pops out on me would would have to be Brandon Lilly. Mm -hmm. You know, Brandon Lilly had an injury that was pretty similar yeah. in, in a lot of ways to mine. You know, a bad squat injury, and. Um, you know, people talk, and uh, people got that squat on video of me getting hurt. And I think um, anybody that's had some sort of injury in powerlifting that's been catastrophic, where tendons have gotten tore, uh, back's been broke, because it has happened. Mm -hmm. I think it's powerlifting's a it's a really tight knit, and I think they a lot of those guys and girls kind of came together, and after they seen the video. And we're like, we got to help this guy out or encourage him, uh, financial assistance, what's happened for me as well. Mm -hmm. It meant everything to me. Uh, you know, Brandon Lilly, Dave Tate, 22nd Street Barbell, all these guys really helped me out. Well, and I know 22nd point. Street Barbell specifically stepped up a lot to help me financially. 22nd Street Barbell stepped up to the plate immediately and said, we're going to help this guy. And they gave me, gave me a good amount of money to help afford you know, my, my daughter's daycare, mm -hmm. you know, I had the overhead for my facility. I had my own bills and I hadn't even gotten the first medical bill in yet. You know, that was just a ticking time bomb. And, you know, then my coach, Jay Ashman, you know, who uh, has, has worked with me for four years now and we're great friends, one of my best friends. And uh, he organized a, a GoFundMe, mm -hmm. you know, to help me out as well. And, you know, all that all that financial assistance, it kept Rachel and I, it kept us alive, you know, but I, I, I sold a squat rack, you know, I, I still, we sold some jewelry. We, we did what we had to do mm -hmm. to, to make it. And we did, but none of it would have been possible with the, without the help of other people in the powerlifting community. I'll, I'll never forget it. I'll never forget names. And, uh, I'll never forget this specific time of year because today, November 15th is two years ago that I had surgery. Yeah. So. 
Can you speak to the <clears throat> mindset and sort of what were you, you were going through psychologically around this time two years ago? Because I've, I remember correctly that first Thanksgiving was a it was a big struggle for you. Mentally. Yeah. Um, you know, I, even even before that, I like to back up a little bit here. Um, even after the first time I was hospitalized uh, on the 22nd and 23rd, I was in the hospital for a full week almost and um, with dislocated knees. I remember like, I'd go to sleep and I thought, hey, this is a bad dream. You know, that you, you'd wake up and you're like, nope, I still can't move my legs. <laughs> when you had rhabdomyolysis had in rhab- the hospital. Yeah, I had no idea what that was. Mm-hmm. I thought that they were just putting me and uh, wanting me to stay overnight. Just Something to, CrossFitters joke about, right? Yeah, <laughs> right, right. And they're like, you have rhabdomyolysis. And I, I knew my piss looked funny. Yeah. You know, I was like, why, like, why is my urine brown or mm-hmm. like this goldish brown color? I'm not sure. And I remember the, uh, the nurse came in and got it and she kind of looked at it and said, whoa, yeah, you know this this isn't good and got it tested and next thing you know they're they're hydrating me with everything that they have and come in and tell me your first hospital hospitalization is this probably going to be for this because your knees are too swollen mm-hmm. to operate so they yeah. had to push down push back the operating time to november 15th so i'm waddling around with dislocated knees for three weeks and i did go back to work i went back to work that next week and i worked from a wheelchair and I was just like, this, this is the way it's going to be, mm-hmm. and I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to feel sorry for myself. Don't be, don't get me wrong. There were times I did feel, bad. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, did, I did, I did feel bad for myself, but uh, I, I still did what uh, I tried to do in a daily routine, and uh, still tried to be a, you know, a father and a husband, and, and do what was necessary. So, but the the surgery November fifteenth, I, <clears throat> I, I was more, I was pretty optimistic going into it, and I thought. You know what? This 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 might be pretty rough, but I think I'll be fine. But I remember waking up initially, and the amount of pain that I was in, I was like, "Holy hell, this is this is awful." Yeah, and it was it was almost breathtaking in some ways. And the first time the physical therapy uh, clinic from Truman had a couple people off their staff come in, and they tried to uh, get me to get off the bed into the wheelchair. I couldn't do it. There's a, I, I just couldn't do it. But mm-hmm. Everything hurt that bad, and I thought something was going to snap again. And yeah. um, that was a psychological fear I had to get over as well. For sure. And um, I stayed in the hospital for, I think, three days in recovery. And then they finally released me to go home, mm-hmm. which was a circus in itself. Was, I, had, I had stairs at my house. So we're wondering, like, how are we going to get Josiah up the stairs? Well, Lucky me, I got some very large friends that are, <laughs> that are pretty strong, and so they came to assist me, and those are all guys I'll, I'll never forget as well. Mm-hmm. So <coughs> skip ahead a few months. We started working together February 17th, Okay. and I'm just looking at our notes right now. For those of you who may understand how much your knee can bend. Most people with a very healthy knee, if you were to bend your knee right now, you could probably get it to at least 135, maybe 140 uh, degrees of what we would call knee flexion. If you need to get to a parallel squat depth, you probably need a little over 90 degrees, Um, maybe over a little bit over 100, depending on your body anatomy and all your lever lengths. Day one, 
we were able to bend Josiah's right knee to 44 degrees and his <laughs> left knee to an astounding 48 degrees. That's how much those knees would bend first day after therapy because of how stiff and then painful they were. Now, during the initial couple months, our goal was basically we need to get as much range of motion in these knees as possible. So what we would end up doing is very, very uh, long duration, low load stretching, and then we would follow it up with high intensity manual therapy of basically us holding down Josiah and pushing on his knee because of how stiff his knees were. And we couldn't do a manipulation, mind you, after weeks of trying to do this without much progress because the tendons would have likely snapped, possibly. So we were doing this for such a long time, doing everything we could, slowly seeing small progress, slowly seeing progress. Eventually, I think we stalled out again at like maybe that 60 60, 60, 70. 65 degrees. Yeah, and this is weeks of three days a week, therapy sessions lasting three hours hours long. So most people come to therapy – you're getting like a 40 – for most people at Boost Physical Therapy at least, we usually do about an hour to an hour and a half physical therapy appointments. Some physical therapy places, depending on their clientele, the type of injuries, they may be a little bit more or less. But most of the time, hour, hour and a half max. And you're there for three hours, three days a week, just crushing as much mobility work as possible. And we were only seeing small returns on our investment basically. And it wasn't until – we elicited the help of uh, one of my coworkers, Carissa, who uh, certified in dry needling. Now, dry needling we would consider a passive modality. It's something you're not specifically doing. You're having someone else do the treatment to you. And up until this point, um, I wouldn't say I was a, a non-believer. I mean, there's many passive modalities that have their effectiveness, um, especially in treating soft tissue dysfunction, problems like that. But I had never been like, oh, we need to dry needle everyone. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's, I'm definitely a move first or a functional approach to treatment kind of person first. And then if we need to use any passive modalities, you know, per the person, we'll use them. Well, it wasn't until we did dry needling in specific treatments that she actually reached out to many of her mentors in learning the dry needling. We did it whereas she was inserting the needles and she would do like what? 20 needles a knee and she was leaving them in and then also twisting them a little bit. Basically, the goal was to help modify the scar tissue. When scar tissue is laid down, it sort of is laid down like haphazardly, like a spider web basically. It's all over. And if you look at regular muscle fiber, it's very aligned and parallel. Well, what we were doing is inserting the needles and then letting them sit for a while and then twisting them almost to help basically turn them back to a more normal alignment, help take away their binding hold on the tissues that is currently restricting the range of motion. And let me tell you, it was not very pain-free. It was difficult to go through. It was was absolutely brutal. I I was not expecting that. Like I I thought once the pain levels from the surgery went down, Mm -hmm. like I could probably go to go to therapy and, yeah, it might be a little rough some days, but I was not ready for all the manual work. Mm-hmm. I thought, yeah, my knees might be a little stiff, but you know they'll bend. Yeah, they'll bend eventually because that's what they're supposed to do, right? Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're supposed to be able to bend after you know some manual work, maybe for a month or two. And we spent a lot of time, you know, just trying to get my knees to move. It'd be like two hours of the physical therapy session was gone. 
you know, just based around you pushing on me and Carissa poking needles in my legs. Yeah. <laughs> so. It was it was something that we had to do for a long, long time. I'm just looking back at your measurements right now. I don't think we stopped doing the dry needling and all the aggressive June. aggressive manual work. Yeah, until it was June. I'm looking right now. Uh, we did dry needling still on this is June 14th. Yep. Um, and I mean we were pushing like crazy. Uh, I remember one time we had. Three physical therapists holding down Josiah while I would push on his knee. Someone's measuring. Now, remind you, this is an extreme measure. This isn't something that everyone that has a surgery has to undergo because a lot of times they get their range of motion back. We ended up putting a hole in the drywall because I think your head was smashed up against the hole. Yeah, <laughs> you're, you're, you're pushing on my leg. And uh, I remember... Uh, Dave was holding me down, mm-hmm. and then, like, Kevin was holding me down, and then I think Diana was measuring, and, yeah. and uh, you just kept pushing, and I, I, my head was kind of braced against the wall naturally, mm-hmm. and um, you know all all the pain I was in, I just I just tightened up my neck and everything immediately, so I didn't even notice my head <laughs> was pushing against the wall. You know, all my pain was focused on my leg, and uh, when we got back up, I just noticed there was a crack going down the sheetrock. I think it, it speaks to how hard-headed you are. <laughs> I will say uh, in all my years of having to do very aggressive manual therapy on people with very stiff knees, and this is like a handful of people. So of all the people that I see on a regular basis, I can count on two hands the amount of people I've had to actually do this very aggressive manual therapy with. So it's not very common. Josiah is by far the person I've ever seen put up with this amount of pain. No one could have put up with this pain and gotten the same outcomes. Um, but eventually we got to the point where you could bend your knees. I think we got up to like 120 degrees on one side, 123 on the other side. So yeah, it was 123 and 120. It took forever. And then, so we started in February. We didn't get done with our mostly mobility centered therapy until June. Yeah. And then it was like, all right, we've got where we think a, a good amount, a solid foundation of movement capability let's start progressing with our loading. Now, just mind you, that's four months later. Most of the time with like, if it was just an ACL or an ACL, MCL, you know, meniscus combination by like a football player with a torn uh, ACL, they're running, starting their running by four, by 16 weeks, four months out. We're just starting to do a basic bodyweight squat and holding a small kettlebell. <laughs> so we're starting, I mean, the progression is much, much slower than what normally would go on for just a, a surgery that we would still consider extremely invasive and, uh, and intense as far as the rehab goes. So we started progressing and we started doing bodyweight squats. And then I think I told you that the squat is not just a movement we do on two legs. It's a squat we do on one leg. And no matter who you are, even if you can squat 1,000 pounds, you should have the capability to perform a single leg squat, even to small depth, on one leg. And I think you looked at me like I was speaking Spanish to you. I just thought it was stupid as shit, to be quite honest. <laughs> I was like, why am I doing this? Like I can barely stand on two feet, and you're going to have me try squatting one-legged. Like, That's not going to work. And another thing that ran through my mind, just being a competitor, I was like – there's no such thing as a one-legged squat competition. Mm-hmm. And so I, I didn't see the point. But the way looking back on things now, you know, the way I lived my life before obviously got me to 
a pretty catastrophic injury. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was time to listen up and, and do some things differently. And, and now I can see the importance of it. I so can see the importance of it. Yes. If you're a strength-minded individual listening to this podcast, and you can squat a lot of weight on two feet, if you cannot unload it, do a single leg squat off like your staircase. That's probably about eight inches in height. Do a very easy single leg squat, control your body down, tap the ground, come back up. If you cannot do that, that means that your body has a weak link in how it is coordinating and handling its movement capabilities that opens up the potential for injury. So I'm not talking necessarily performance-wise when we're talking single leg squat. Well, that does have its implications as far as improving motor control and quality of movement, but from an injury perspective, you know, coming back, we need to fill in some of those gaps in your ability to control your body. So if someone has an inability to control their body on one leg, it means that they have a potential for injury eventually in the future. So we ended up coming back, doing a little bit more motion, a little bit more movement strengthening, doing the leg press, you know, doing things that you would start to look like we're actually doing some training right now. And I think you came to me and you're like, hey, I want to do one more meet. <laughs> Yeah, um, you know, for for me, I always wanted to see a, a purpose and everything and what I was doing. And now that now that some things are looking up uh, after all the manual work was done, the manual work period of time was those are some pretty dark days for me. I mean, those this the the pain that I was in and uh, just just driving, you know, the physical therapy. Sometimes I'd be thinking to myself, I just just turn around. You know this. This is this is pointless. It's not getting you anywhere. This is just the way it's going to be. But uh, but I didn't. You know, I, I stuck stuck it out. You know, not every day was flying colors, but I, I made it through. And but once the motion came back, and I was able to, you know, go, just do simple things like go to the grocery store and pick up groceries for my wife. Um, you know, take the trash out. You know, change a diaper. You know, do that stuff. I I wasn't able to do that before. You know, I. I squat down and fall over or something like that <laughs> and so once i was able to be a a normal functioning human being i thought you know i i got a lot of uh, um naysayers i guess you could say uh that you know they thought i was done or i wasn't going to be able to, to do anything ever again as far as strength goes and so i i wanted to come back and i wanted to do one more meet and uh not to so much you know prove to them that i didn't uh, have it in me anymore, but I, I wanted to prove it to myself that I, I could still come back and still compete and still put up decent numbers. And I've done, I've done two meets, you know, since the injury, you know, one of them I squatted one last time at, and I'm fine with that. You know, the last one I, I just did deadlift and bench press and I'm fine with doing those moving forward. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm finally content with it. So I remember one thing that we did while we were finally getting back to loading the barbell is we ended up switching your technique from a high bar squat Mm -hmm. prior to a low bar squat. Now, when most people think of high bar versus low bar, we're like, all right, weightlifters and crossfitters do high bar, uh, powerlifters do low bar. But that's that's not entirely true. It's obviously a vast generalization. There's a number of powerlifters that can squat huge weight with a high bar squat. They just feel more comfortable like that. Yeah. I, I don't know. I never messed around with the low bar that much. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I always squatted high bar um, throughout college, and uh, I squatted quite a bit of weight in college. Like my best squat in college was a five fifty, mm-hmm. and uh, that's what I just kind of carried over in the powerlifting. So I just kind of thought if it's not if it's not broke, then 
don't try to fix it. And mm-hmm. So I never, I never bothered moving to a low bar. And you know, my coach Jay Ashman at one point said something to me. Why don't you try a low bar a little bit? And I played around with it, and uh, it was during meat prep. And he just kind of thought, you know what? It's you're doing fine with a high bar. Just, just leave it there. So yeah. I never made the switch. Maybe I should have. Yeah. I, I don't know if it would have made a difference or not. But mm-hmm. it's again, it's, it's something that I think it's worth trying more. I didn't try. I just kind of messed around with it. But I don't think a high bar squat versus a low bar squat for me was the difference between a, a catastrophic injury. <laughs> yeah. So. yeah. During the rebuilding process, uh, if we're looking at mechanics of squat, a high bar back squat, because of the more upright chest position that is needed in order to stay balanced, keep the bar over the midfoot when viewed from the side, you're going to have to have a greater knee flexion angle. So the knee is going to have to bend a little bit more, usually translate further forward over the toes. A low bar back squat so you're holding the bar a little bit lower maybe three four inches a little bit lower on the back usually around the mid shoulder blade level because you're holding it lower on your back you're going to have a more inclined chest position relative to a high bar back squat and what that also does is it then changes the mechanics of where the hips and knees are so you're going to have the knees not translate further forward over the toes the hips will be a little bit more close to a you know greater flexion angle what that means is For someone like Josiah at that point who did not have a lot of available knee range of motion, he couldn't sit his butt on his heels, his knees could not bend that much, he physically could not get into a high bar back squat bottom position without being off balance because the chest would fall forward too much. So by switching to a low bar back squat, it became a little bit more natural for his movement capabilities to have a more balanced squat at that time and i think when you came back you ended up training for what a number of weeks and you did 190 i did i think i did 190 at the meet but uh i think the last time i i really pushed it in, in physical therapy i yeah, i squatted was it 205 for Something 13 like and then yeah. you know several months after physical therapy i did 235 for 18 and i just kind of thought you know what that's that's good enough <laughs> I, you know i yeah. i can come back and move some decent weights again but yeah that's not the that's not the point now, I guess. Yeah, I mean the big thing you have the capability to squat. You're still squatting. Mm-hmm. You're just not pushing the squat. You know, we right. with the history of injury, it's probably not the best idea to say let's try to shoot for another 700 pound squat. It's not, and um, you got you got to get a, a grasp on things. And you know, for me, everybody's different. You know, yeah. with, with their priorities, and you know, for me, my my biggest priorities now are you know my my family and my business and. You know, I get more satisfaction out of helping other people now than I do actually training for meets. Mm-hmm. You know, I like helping people get ready for meets and then going observing or, or going and watching some of my athletes play. That, to me, is, is almost more rewarding than it would be to compete again. Would you say that the injury gave you a different perspective in how you uh, go about Oh, my gosh. I'm, I'm twice the coach now than I was two years ago. And it's it's encouraged me to read more. It's encouraged me to listen to other people's viewpoints more. Mm-hmm. And it's encouraged me to pay attention to my <laughs> – I think my athletes appreciate it more now too because, mm-hmm. you know, I, I was pretty – I pushed them pretty hard as well. You know, if they had an ache or pain, I'd, I'd pretty much just say, okay. Yeah. And that would be the end of it and we'd go to town. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's been hard – it's been a little bit difficult for me to try to reverse their mindset – of, hey, we're going to deal with this week. Your back's bothering you. Let's, let's, let's take it easy. Mm-hmm. Because they still have the mindset 
of when the old Josiah was training him. <laughs> like, no, I think I'll be okay. Well, go ahead and let me uh, let me hit a couple of heavy singles. I'll be all right. And I'm just sitting there telling him, no, mm-hmm. the platform will be there waiting. Yeah, you know, there's always time you have. Mm-hmm. So there's time you have, and it's not worth a it's not worth a catastrophic injury, and it's not worth um, taking five steps back. You know, from the six steps forward that you were at. So. Now, you're still training deadlifts heavy, though, correct? I still bring it once in a while, but I would say the time, the times I train heavy now are more because I want to. Yeah. You know, I love powerlifting, and I, I will never, I will never stop doing it completely. I don't ever plan on having a retirement from the sport. But the training I do now, I still bench heavy, I still deadlift heavy, but I definitely do it now because I because I want to. Mm-hmm. I don't do it because I feel like I have to. Yeah. And in some ways, I felt like I had to do meets. Like it was the only thing that kept me training hard was if I had a meet planned. And I felt like I had to keep hitting PRs. I had to keep moving forward. You know, if you're not getting better, you're getting worse, blah, 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 blah. And maybe that might be, that might be true to a certain extent. You got to ask yourself once in a while at, at what cost, and unless you've been really hurt bad, I really don't think you have a valid reason like to <clears throat> to try to combat that and say, well, you're just being a baby or you just don't want to train hard anymore. It's like just wait till you rupture something <laughs> or, or or tear multiple tendons off. You're, you'll think different about everything. Yeah. Well, you won't do it anymore. You know, some people flat out quit. You know, I talked to a few lifters that just told me. You know, they've had horrific injuries. They never came back. You know, they walked away from it completely. You know, mm-hmm. Brandon Lilly did. He's done with powerlifting. No. Competed for 15 years. He's done. He finally just said, I can't do it anymore. And you know what? That's okay. Congratulations. I, I commend him for that. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. so let's switch our talk. Um, let's talk powerlifting now as far as training methodology, stuff like that, just because <laughs> I know this is an area – of huge interest for you that you've immersed yourself in for the better part of more than a decade. Um, what are sort of your current methods uh, as far as the way that you like to train your clients that have a goal of competing in powerlifting? I think it depends on, you know, your, your age, mm-hmm. your, uh, your lifting experience. Um, injuries are huge, you know, cause I believe it or not, you know, I have some, People that are in their 40s, then a couple of moms that did their first powerlifting meet a few months ago. And, you know, it's important they figure out their health history first before you just tell them, okay, well, here's the deadlifts we're doing today. Let's go to town. You know, mm-hmm. you got you to really figure out your lifters, get to know your lifters, mm-hmm. get to know how they think, what they like, what they don't like. You know, I have some people that follow a one-year model. I have some people that follow a conjugate model, mm-hmm. and I got some people that usually um, they follow a, a block model too as well. But each person is different. It's different, and I think it's important to figure that out. There's no one great way to train somebody, and you know I might have somebody doing speed work with uh, with bands and you know hitting a bunch of triples with minimal uh, rest time, and then I might have a guy come in after them, and they're following a one year model. You know, they're doing something completely different because that's what I believe is the best for them. Yeah. So, but well, I think it, it speaks to the fact that, you know, so many people today, we see a lot of these great athletes on social media who are trying to make a name for themselves and also create some revenue by doing online training. Sure. And obviously there's ones that can do it very well. Mm-hmm. And 
there's a lot that do it very poorly. And I think the big difference between the two is the person that's there just to make money and the person that's obviously not having your best interest in you know, in sight is the person that just gives these generic plans away. Like, oh, you've been lifting for two months, do this plan. Or, oh, you want to hit this goal, do this plan. I mean, while that may work for some people, it may be completely wrong for other people because there's so many different factors that come into play as far as how is someone going to uh, progress on a set plan. And those people that do that, they, they will fade out yeah. over time. You know, and just because you're a great lifter doesn't mean you're a good coach. You know, I've competed with some, you know, very good lifters that were twice the power lifters that I ever would be. But when it came to coaching, you know, they didn't know shit. Yeah. They, they had no idea what they were talking about. You know, they were just so gifted and uh, had so much genetic potential mm-hmm. that they were just able to move a ton of weight. And whatever program you gave them, they were going to get stronger. For sure. There's some people like that. And I think it's uh, social media can kind of be a bastard in that sense because you'll look at videos of certain lifters and be like, well, so-and-so and so-and-so is following this program. You know, this is what I should probably do. And I'm like, well, guess what? You're not them. Yeah. You know, not you're not even a fraction close to being like they are. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, all the, all the programming. And I, I've had a few different coaches. And um, for the most part, all, a few of them, I mean, Jay Ashburn's great. You know, each program would get sent weekly. Yeah. Because you know what? Things could change the next week. Mm-hmm. If I didn't handle one week well in training, he would adjust it and change it for the next week. Yep. That's exactly how I work my lifters too. I was like, That's great. They try to tell me, okay, well, I've had new clients sign up with me and they'll say, well, you've only sent the first week. It's like, yeah, you'll get the next week. You'll get the, you'll get week two next week. Yeah. And then so following and so on and so forth. It's like things may change. You might tweak your back. You might hurt your hip. You may not like a certain movement. It may irritate your shoulder. You know, it's like everything has to be uh, audible ready. Yeah, you know, I like you, that. Everything's audible ready. You got to be able to switch things up in a jiffy if you have to. And same thing with athletes I train. I got football players. You know, I got volleyball players. I got some volleyball girls that go and play five or six games over a weekend. Mm-hmm. They come back. You know, they're beat up. Their knees are irritating them a little bit. Like if I had a plan to barbell squat them that day, I'll be like, you know what? Let's just move to a goblet squat. Let's hit a goblet squat. Let's move to a box even, mm-hmm. make it a little easier on you. We'll hit a bunch of reps, do it for time, call it good. Yeah. You know, you got to be ready to do that stuff. And I think too many lifters, including myself for a period of time was, this is the program we're doing and this is what we're sticking with. Yeah. No matter what, I don't care if your your back hurts or something because that was me. Yeah. That, well, that, I've been there as well. You know, you have your certain amount of sets and reps. You know, you've got cleaning jerks up to 85% for, you know, six singles and you got to hit 85%. Right. And if you are not feeling good that day, all you do is leave the gym frustrated, pissed off yep. that you weren't able to move well or hit that. And then you get in your head that, well, what if it's not going to be there because I got to meet in five weeks? Like, mm-hmm. what's going on? And then, right. you know. I've, I've, I've figured out that. It's better to almost, when you set up a program, let's say you're setting up a 12-week training cycle for somebody, mm-hmm. you know, it, everything is, everything has a purpose in the program. And I've had people tell me after the first week one, week two, and week three, you know what, this, is, this really isn't too bad. Are, are you sure I'm doing enough? And I always tell them, just wait. When's the meet? Well, it's in nine weeks from now. We're going to peak in nine weeks. Yeah. We're not going to peak in week three. Mm-hmm. We're going to peak in nine weeks. I think too many guys, they, they want to test strength 
more than they do actually build it. They don't they don't see the they don't see the the beauty and and hitting a bunch of reps, hitting a bunch of sets because that's not fun. And the the commercial gym, if you train in a commercial gym, it, that's the the worst place to to so forth uh, build strength. Because you get you get people that are watching you and they mm-hmm. they know you're a, a strong guy or strong girl, mm-hmm. and you feel the pressure to go heavy a little bit. You're like, because you want to show off a little bit. I get it. Mm-hmm. I get. It. Or you want to post a, a cool video of you training, <laughs> but <laughs> no, no one posts videos of their seventy percent. Right. No one posts videos of their seventy percent uh, set of five. When really that seventy percent of five for multiple weeks is what gets you stronger. Unless uh, and. This was uh, our last week guest, powerlifter Kelly Branton from up in uh, Canada. I think he just posted now. Now, granted, his 70% is 700 pounds. But, (laughs) um, you know, Kelly was doing uh, 700 for sets of five. Now, yeah, that's a lot of weight, but that's also not a lot of weight for him as far as the entirety of what he's capable of doing for a single rep. Right. You know? Right. And guys like that, though. I don't know how long has Kelly been around. Over ten years. He'll he, exactly. He's been around a long time. Yeah, and uh, he will probably continue to be around for a long time. Exactly. You know, my, my mentor back home, uh, Bob Boyles, uh, who got me into powerlifting from St. Joseph, Missouri. He was just inducted to the Powerlifting Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. Now he's sixty-one years old. Yeah, he's been powerlifting for over forty years, and he has not ended up on the operating table. Yeah. That just goes to show right there that he's doing something right. He's listened to his body, and he knows when to back off and how to. He knows himself that yeah. well. Mm-hmm. You know, <clears throat> you might think you know yourself well when you're training for a meet, you're getting ready, or you're peaking. But no, but if you're having signs like I had, leading up to a meet where you're you're in pain, you know, and um, if you have an idea that maybe runs through your mind that a certain workout for a particular day may not be a good idea it's probably not a good idea yeah just don't do it yeah just go by your first instinct hang it up move it to tomorrow you have to play the long game right and so many times people think that one workout is going to make or break them Mm -hmm. you know if i if i don't do well in this workout if i don't get this amount of sets or reps at this certain weight life's over as we know it the meat the meat (laughs) the meats went to shit i'm not gonna do well yeah no it's not true and um there's always another meet, you know, and uh, Dave Tate told me, and um, he was one of the guys I really look up to and I follow a lot of his stuff. You know, he told me the platform will always be there. Yeah. He said, you could come back. He told me over the phone, you can come back 10 years from now and still hit good numbers. Yeah. He said, there's no rush. What's the hurry? Yeah. You know, what are you trying to do? And so that right there spoke volumes to me a guy with his resume and his background and, mm-hmm. you know training at west side barbell for over 10 years mm-hmm. that right there told me okay everything will be fine yeah i don't need to hurry up and try to come back and uh do a meet you mm-hmm. know just step by step one at a time just chiseling away at the rock yeah so. i like the idea that you said that every single part <laughs> of the program has to have a purpose i know in our recent conversations i always like to to jump different ideas off of you. Um, and in my own pursuits of trying to continue progressing my lifts, uh, I was having an issue in my squat where at the very bottom of my heaviest lifts, this isn't something that would happen to like 90, 95% is I would be almost 
rocking forward a little bit on my heaviest lifts and I was getting stuck about halfway up on my ascent. And you threw the idea of doing some box squats and pause box squats. I like on my, um, so I usually squat twice a week, uh, whereas I'm doing Olympic lifting throughout the rest of the week. And you're like, just throw in another squat day at like 65, 70% uh-huh. for some triples speed off the box but pause on the box and just feeling for being balanced with the full foot body weight spread evenly across the full foot and to a weightlifter the idea of doing box squatting is is like speaking spanish to someone that doesn't understand anything but right. english you know box squats are for power lifters you know power lifters do anything but they we do pause squats uh-huh. you know in the bottom because we reach full depth and i was like you know what screw it i'm gonna try something i'm 32 years old you know i've been competing in the sport of weightlifting <clears> since <throat> the age of 18 i'm like i'm gonna try something you know, who cares lose. i've got nothing to lose yeah. you know i haven't competed in over two years because obviously life gets in the way and squatting you know is uh, you know squat university takes up so much of my time but that doesn't mean i'm still not trying to progress my own lifting mm-hmm. and i was like you know what i'm gonna give it a shot i'm gonna do 10 weeks of box squats during this program on wednesdays and it felt weird at first go, doing a box squat because I had not done a box squat for my own personal training for such a long time. And I, you know, I, I definitely saw the change because the last two weeks I've PR'd my back squat and just recently hit something that was a seven kilo PR from before, you know, my original 10 week plan. And that's coming from me. I've been competing in Olympic weightlifting for over, you know, since 2005. Were you, so coming on 13 years. Were you surprised? I was very surprised. <laughs> I felt I crushed the I crushed the PR squat. It just flew right up. Uh-huh. And I felt more balanced. I was watching my videos. I wasn't shifting off the bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as much as I obviously try to help others with their issues, I'm not perfect. <laughs> you right. know? I'm continuing to try to mess around and continue fixing my own issues. Every single injury I have talked about on Squat University have been things I have myself felt in my own training and injuries, but uh, also try to help, obviously, from the rehab side of things. So that's why I'm able to help, I think, so many people because I'm also understanding you. And sure. I'm, I'm, I've been experiencing it myself. Yes. So I think the box squat has been been huge. So. Uh, yeah, it, I, know, I know you like to use it a lot in your training. I did, um, the box squat was something I I started using more because uh, oh, well, all of my clientele shifted um, about a year and a half ago. Mm-hmm. I started to get a, a lot more high school athletes and female and male. Yeah, and the biggest struggle that all of them had was sitting back. Mm-hmm. They didn't want to sit back and. Um, I was like, you know, this is pissing me off. And the weight would come up on their toes. They'd be off balance. And so I just randomly grabbed one of the plyometric boxes I had. I think it was like 18 inches. Yeah. And I said, here, sit back on this. And they went and they sat. I was like, control down, sit back, sit your butt back, sit for a sec, drive up explosively. And bam. Now, when you're talking about sitting back, you're you're just like, let's – control the hips let's get those hips to push right. back originally at the start there's different ways to teach the box squat obviously mm-hmm. when we're talking west side in the way that they teach the box squat mm-hmm. they sit down and then they purposely lean back right almost. They, they shift backwards to where mm-hmm. their chest is more vertical they pause then they shift forward and come back up sure the way you teach the box squat, and the way i've always taught the box squat is obviously we want to engage the hips mm-hmm. right whenever you squat no matter what type of squat you're doing you're engaging the hips first that doesn't mean the knees don't bend mm-hmm. they just don't jam forward at the very start so we're right. keeping our body balanced but we're you know pushing the hips back a little bit if you're doing a high bar back squat you're gonna have more hip 
backwards excursion, I guess you would say, than a front squat. Mm-hmm. Because if you do a huge hip hinge during a uh, front squat, you're obviously going to be off balance again. But we're engaging the hips, we're squatting down, and we're just pausing on the, on the box. Right. We're using it to take out the connection between the slow eccentric mm-hmm. and the fast concentric. Basically just pausing. Mm-hmm. Maintaining tension. Right. And then driving back up. Staying tight, being Staying explosive, tight. Yeah. come off the box violently. Yeah. You know, that that But end. not moving on the box, not sitting and then leaning back. No. Because the goal with the box squat, at least the way we teach it, is the box is only there to strengthen your bottom position, maintain tension, time under tension, yeah. and not uh, or basically change up the natural way in which you're squatting as far as using that eccentric to a concentric that bounced at the bottom, that natural uh, production of power that is used through your tendons to drive you back up by pausing and sitting down there and using the box, you're able to uh, increase time under tension at a specific part of the squat that's able to then help you. You have to have more force production to drive out. So it's increasing your production of power capabilities on the concentric fortune. Right, absolutely. And you know, I, I figured about six to eight weeks because. Uh, I get most of my athletes in the summertime. The summertime, I get a ton of athletes that are working with me, and uh, the, you know the box squat just—it's it, a learning curve. Yeah, it takes away a lot of the, um, in some ways, a lot of the teaching. Mm-hmm. If I wasn't to have them box squat, and um, you know, when you get so many kids in, and you only have so many hours in a day, it's like, what can I give them? That's the most bang for their buck that they're yeah. going to pick up on the fastest, and that we can move forward from. And, you know, usually after about six to eight weeks of box squatting, because we do test out at my place, I'll pull away the box. Yeah. All my kids hit PRs. Well, and the thing, too, is if you were to take a video of someone box squatting, from the side view, their squat should look the exact same yep. as if there was no box there. And obviously, we're yep. stopping it at a certain height. When I'm personally doing it on Wednesdays right now, I'm using a 14-inch height, which puts me about at a parallel, maybe slightly mm-hmm. below parallel squat. Mm-hmm. Being an Olympic weightlifter, squatting high bar, I go very deep on my squat. So I wasn't going to full depth on the box squat. I was going to slightly below parallel. But what I'm focusing on is just maintaining all that tension, being extremely stiff and tight in my entire body. And when I'm sitting down there, am I all the way back on my heels? No. Am I too far forward on my toes? No. I'm evenly spread across the full tripod foot, equal weight distribution, being very stiff and tight, pausing, and then accelerating out of the hole as fast as possible, making sure that when I'm accelerating, I'm not driving forward on my toes. I'm not driving too far back through my heels. Full foot down, knees in line with the feet, and just acceleration. And I knew when I... When I watched some of your, your squat videos and mm-hmm. I recommended that you do them, I, I knew that it couldn't hurt yeah. because you've done, um, you know, the same thing for so long. Yeah. You know, I was like, you know, if it works, great. I'm, I'm a genius. If it doesn't work, then, you know, there's there's really no loss to it. Yeah. But, but at, the same, at the same time, it's like, you know, you just needed a, a different stimulus, a yeah. totally different training stimulus, you know, and, you know, that's why uh, – I, I do enjoy that the conjugate method and some of the stuff that Westside Barbell introduces with the different bars, yeah, the chains, mm-hmm. you know, and some band stuff yeah. because it's it's not it's not going to do anything but help you in yeah. the long run. You know, you don't got to look at the immediate. Look at the long term. Where do you want to be five, ten years from now? You know, not not where do you want to be necessarily next month or six months even. You know, if you put on if you put on the lifting for a very long time, you know, it, it's a it's a long thought out process, 
You know, it, it, you're chiseling away at the rock slowly all the time, just little hits, little hits. And as long as you're moving forward in some way and as long as you're staying healthy, staying healthy is a step in the right direction. Because if you're making progress for six to eight weeks, then all of a sudden you get hurt and you have to take three months off. Then you come back again and you're doing good for about four to five months. And then you get hurt again. You get two months. You're losing. You know, some, no. something's wrong in your program. And, you know, you got to figure it out or else you're going to end up having a really bad injury at some point. Yeah. At some point, hopefully not. Well, I like the idea of switching things up and trying new things as far as using boxes, chains and stuff. If we're talking a lot more of our, our main lifts, obviously when we're talking the Olympic lifts, you know, doing variations. Uh, I currently what I'm doing is uh, in this 10-week program, I was doing a paused pull at the knee, maybe two, three seconds, then all the way up to the hip, holding it, going back down to the knee and doing a, clean from the knee or snatch from the knee and then jerk if I'm doing my clean. So using different variations of the lifts as well, you know, if we're doing triples with our power or if we're doing high hang cleans, you know, stuff like that is going to get you out of the, uh, the monotony of doing day in and day out, only working about my big numbers of my main lifts after years, eventually that just becomes day in and day out the same thing you you almost get overwhelmed with only thinking about your main lift numbers you know i think sometimes right now i've been for my past couple years since i've been working at boost obviously i have to change up the way in which i'm lifting Mm -hmm. in training because i don't get that standard three hours in the gym that most weightlifters are used to so i have to change up and make my workouts interesting enough so i can continue to see progress and just by recording the type of variation i'm doing so if i'm doing doubles cleans from the knees plus one jerk you know using that for a block i'm recording what my pr is in that specific variation so that the next time i come around to it i can try to break that pr and but it gives me a different thing to look forward to rather than just thinking only of my snatch clean and jerk back squat front squat if you're gonna if you're gonna train a long time too like as, as long as you've been olympic weightlifting and um as long as i've been powerlifting some of it is just you, you want to have fun right yeah. you, you want to enjoy it and so adding in a different exercise or, or a different movement, you know, for, for multiple weeks, uh, it, it, it's fun. Yeah. You know, you, you got to have fun doing this. If you're if you're going into a workout like, ah, I really don't want to do this today. And, yeah. And, you know, maybe take a step back. Take a step back and do some things that maybe you want to do for once. If you're not getting ready for a meet, then I think it's pointless. You know, just have fun for a while. And then if you have a, a hunch to compete again or whatnot, then you know, then reevaluate some things, but, you know, look at coaches, talk to other people, keep your mind open, especially yeah. if you haven't seen progress for a long period of time. Yeah. Well, let's talk chains. I know you've <laughs> used chains and bands before, correct, in your own training. I've used more chains than I have than bands. Okay. And um, the band training, the reason why I haven't used many bands, um, I didn't necessarily care for um, some of the torque okay. that it did put on some of my joints. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I don't, I think they're very handy, uh, in the bench press. I yeah. think they're very handy with that. I think they're very handy in the deadlift, but as far as for me personally, mm-hmm. using them in the squat, I, I have, <laughs> I, I have no purpose now. Why would you use chains for those out there that have never used chains before? Well, if you've ever, well, the, the chains, they are going to, um, apply a bunch of torque Mm-hmm. You know, as soon as you unrack it, yeah. you, know, you use bands. And if you have a ton of band tension at the top, if you don't take it off the rack stable, or yeah. you don't pull out the bottom aggressively, I mean, you, you could really get hurt bad. 
you know, the chains are just going to give you, you know, it's going to be heavier at the top. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, who doesn't need more, you know, speed on their top end, the bench press, deadlift, or squat? Yeah. So to me, another instance, more bang for your buck. You know, I'd rather throw chains on the bar than I would spend time trying to wrap bands around the squat rack and uh, on my bench press or on my deadlifts. And, you know, because I keep in mind, you know, I'm working with a lot of kids here too. And, you know, I don't, I don't need necessarily to have some 16-year-old girl, you know, deadlifting with bands if she's never lifted before in her life. You know, I, I look at all that stuff like, uh, you know, like a deck of cards. You know, you just play each card when you have to. Yeah. You know, introduce chains when you have to. Introduce bands when you have to. If you stop seeing progress, then start throwing that stuff in. But don't just randomly start throwing chains and bands on stuff. I introduced chains originally from my bench press because I was plateaued. Mm-hmm. At about 450 pounds, and I wasn't getting any better. You know, it was tough. I, I gained weight, got a little bit better, but then my blood pressure was through the roof. It was it was terrible. I was walking around at 270, and um, I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to be that big. I don't want to be that fat. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, my coach told me, you know, buy a Swiss bar, buy some chains. I think this is going to help you out. You just need a different training stimulus, and that's exactly what I needed. I needed something different. And so I ran cycles of uh, just 16-week cycles of, like, Swiss bar and chains. That's all I did for 16 weeks. Yeah. I thought it was nuts at first. But then we came back, and I did regular competition-style bench pressing for eight weeks, got rid of the chains, hit a 15-pound PR on my bench. Wow. And so it was just like, yeah, it might have sounded stupid at first. And there might be a lot of things out there that sound dumb, kind of like the box squats did to you. Yeah. But guess what? They worked. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> so for the science out there, for those of you who don't know, um, it's called accommodating resistance. So basically, when we're looking at the squat, let's say someone has a uh, PR squat of 250 pounds. Well, obviously, if you walk in any uh, commercial gym, you see a lot of the gym bros squatting a lot of weight relative to whoever they are, uh, but they do quarter reps. They couldn't even come close to doing that same weight all the way down. Obviously, you can quarter squat a lot more weight than you could full squat. So there's this like curve of how strong you are at certain parts of the squat. Let's say someone's PR squat is 250 again, and they have 50 pounds of chain on the side of the bar that is loaded to 200. So 200 is on the bar, 50 pounds of chain, 25 on each side. Low total is right now their PR when they come off, the total load at the top. When they squat down, the chains then sort of pile up on the ground so that at the bottom of the squat, that person is now loaded only 200 pounds. So relative to their one rep max, it's much lower. As they then return, so on their ascent, the chains then start piling back up, and you now are loading more and more on the bar, so you are accommodating to the resistance curve at which your body can handle load. Basically, the goal is that we're able to push through and create more of a stimulus for creating power on the ascent of the squat. So if someone has a problem with they get down into a squat, they come up, maybe halfway up, they start stalling, and then that's where they miss their squat. That person could benefit theoretically from using uh, chains because it will help them strengthen the top half portion of their squat by improving their power production to accelerate. Now, I was doing a, a similar thing, not as far as accommodating resistance, but working on power production by doing the paused box squats. So sitting down, 
taking out the natural power production of bouncing out of the bottom of the squat and then driving as fast as I could, accelerating out. Similar idea in that we're trying to work on improving acceleration and power on the ascent, mm-hmm. but different way of going about it. So that's why theoretically someone would use chains. Right. And, and for me, it was the right time to do it because I, I hadn't uh, PR'd on my bench press for three meets. Yeah. Which was in two years. I hadn't PR'd. And where was I stuck out on my bench? I'd fire it off my chest, drive it about halfway up, yeah. stall. That'd be the end of it. So, again, it's where you're <clears throat> missing the lift. You've hit plateaus. Yeah. Technique work is not working. Then we can think about using some of these extra right, chain, right. training if, tools. If you're slow off your chest immediately, then no, you don't You don't need to start adding chains in. It's, yeah. it's pointless. So. If you're getting stuck in the bottom of the squat – you don't need to be using chains yet. No. You need to work on other things in order to improve right. your squat rather than jump directly to chains. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Correct. that would be the big thing. Well, man, I think we've been podcasting now for a little over an hour and like 15 minutes or so, so one of the longest podcasts, but I think we were able to give a ton of content out there for people to understand, A, what can happen theoretically if you're mm-hmm. pushing through bad injuries over and over again, not taking the right mindset on that this is a long game, you know, you're running a marathon technically when we're talking about the strength iron game. Right. You know, this isn't a no pain, no gain kind of attitude. And what happens can potentially happen if you take the right mo- wrong mindset for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, talked a lot of powerlifting, gave a lot of people some good ideas on ways in which they can train and modify programs and stuff to the individual. Um, where can people reach out and learn more about you, your gym and where you're located and work with you potentially? You know, you could find me on Facebook, you know, you can uh, look me up, Optimum Personal Training. Um, and I'll locate out of Blue Springs, Missouri. And my website is optimum-personaltraining.com. And I offer online programming, uh, in-person training. You just hit me up and I'm pretty quick to respond. No problem. So um, if you guys do want to uh, revisit or for the first time check out Josiah's story, that's the name of the documentary on YouTube, you can see the entire process of us going through injury. You can see the video of Josiah injuring himself and the entire process of aggressive physical therapy, finally getting back under the barbell, doing his first meet after. You can see and talk to or hear, you know, Dr. Christopher Shaw, his impression of everything. It's really a cool process to go through and get that whole documentary out there. And it was, like I said, one of the greatest, uh, you know, things as far as I've ever been uh, a part of being able to to impact you and, and be a part of the rehab process. And obviously, we've developed a great friendship from this. So something that will stick with me for the rest of my life. So. You know, one more thing I'd like to add here, yeah. too, is, you know, if, if, if you do have an injury or you are having a some chronic pain, you know, seek help. Don't, don't ignore it and think you can maybe fix it yourself. If it's not getting better, do some homework, ask some questions, you know, find a physical therapist that has a background and and strength sports of some sort. They're out there. Mm. You may have to drive a little further than you're willing, or you may have to pay a little more than you're willing, but if it gets you better, you can't put a price tag on that. And we're seeing the emergence of a lot more, um, many more physical therapists out there that have a background in strength training. I know, when you reached out to me, you were like, man, I just, I don't want to go to my run of the mill physical therapy place that I can find in any strip mall because unfortunately, as much as I love my profession of being a physical therapist, I know that there are many out there that don't have any idea what a barbell back squat is regardless, you know, of the type of injury. They have no idea how to get you back to 
doing the type of things that you want. They may understand an injury, mm-hmm. an ACL tear, but they don't understand the performance side of things that are getting you back or what it takes mentally to progress back to where you want it to be. Right. They, they don't have the uh, – find someone who has the <clears throat> you know, the – the science and research behind their name, but they also have the the practical experience. They know what it's like to get under a bar. They know what it's like to throw a football or get hit. You know, they know what it's like to be hurt at some mm-hmm. point. You know, you, you can't. Unfortunately, it is hard to find. I think I only found two people when yeah. I was referred to you by your mentor from mm-hmm. college. You know, there's only two people he knew that he would refer me to in this. Kansas City area, which we're at. Yeah. Um, uh, what I would say for anyone who's going through this or just any type of injury and want to look out for and find a physical therapist like that, just do a simple Google search, sports physical therapy near me. 10, 15 places may pop up. Call the places. Say, do you have any physical therapists that have a background in strength conditioning or have you know a background in weight training, powerlifting, CrossFit, who played football, Dif- different things like that, that they treat athletes and they know what it's like because they're an athlete themselves or were an athlete themselves. You know, that's huge. Uh, you know, you can look at degrees, uh, but again, just because someone has name numbers or letters behind their name doesn't necessarily mean that they're the best person. You know, experience I think trumps a lot right. of things. Uh so yeah, that's that would be my first go-to. So, well, I think that's it for the podcast today. Uh, I want to thank everyone for listening to this podcast. I hope you enjoyed the content, got a lot out of it. Um, if you did enjoy, it, please continue to share the podcast with your friends and family. Please keep tagging me on Instagram over stories, sharing the podcast, take a screenshot of it, so I can personally reach out to you and say thank you from the bottom of my heart for sh- uh, sharing the show. It means so much to me. Until next week, guys. Happy squatting. That's it for today, class, on Squat University by Dr. Aaron Horshig. For more exclusive content, log on to squatuniversity.com.